<clears throat> Good morning. Uh, John is on uh, out of town this weekend, so we will not be doing the, the series. And I've chosen uh, a section in Luke, um, several um, verses leading up to ours this morning for context would be um, Jesus has been rebuking the Pharisees and telling them that they have gotten off track and into riches and fame and uh, such things as that, and they've lost sight of the law, the real meaning of the law and the gospel that he has come to fulfill in their midst. And then uh, he continues with this story of Lazarus and the rich man in that same vein. So Luke 16, beginning in verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed from what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, well, then I beg you, Father, send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word again this morning. Would you use it to help us, comfort us where necessary, convict us where necessary? We ask that you would do it in Jesus' name. Amen. You've no doubt heard of those um, after-death experiences that people say they've had, um, tunnels of light, shadowy angelic figures. Some say they saw Jesus others, things like that, and so on. In Japan and a number of other cultures, there is a belief in reincarnation, that depending on how good or bad you are in this life, you come back as something better or worse in another life on this earth. Well, today's text tells us what really goes on in the afterlife, and it's completely different from those after-death experiences and reincarnation. And this text today is, I think we can say, unique in the scriptures in that it contains more information 
about the afterlife than any other single text. And it, it begins with a phrase that was a common introduction to parables when it says, there was a certain, and in this case, rich man. Now, some scholars say, well, it's just a parable, meaning it isn't that real. Others say, no, it isn't a parable as such because the specific name of Lazarus is used, which is never done in other parables. Well, either way, it's in the Bible. Jesus is speaking here. So by way of outline this morning, I want to take it in three parts for our consideration. Uh, 19 through 21, we'd like to call rich and poor in this life. And then 22 through 28, rich and poor in the next life. And then the last part, 29 through 31, which would be the centrality, the value, and the function of the scriptures. So that's how we want to take that. So first, rich and poor in this life. The rich man lived what's been called the good life. Purple was a sign of royalty and wealth. Uh, linen was also a sign of being rich because the common people wore cotton and even burlap clothing. It says he lived a life of luxury. And that word evokes feelings of ease of living, um, long since unworried, not worried about covering expenses. Today, it would mean having millions of dollars. His college is easily covered for all of his children, uh, maybe several homes. Uh, more concerned about whether to go to Europe again this summer or somewhere else. You may have heard about oil man J. Paul Getty. Uh, he had so much money, he didn't really know the actual amount, even though the story is that he had three accountants whose full-time jobs were to monitor how much he had and keep up with it. The story goes that when he was asked how much he had, he said, I don't know exactly. And then when asked, well, how much do you want? He said, he reportedly said, one dollar more. That's the idea here. By the world's standards, do you realize we're that rich? by the world standards. Average Americans are wealthy compared to much of the world, yet most of us don't consider ourselves among the rich. Well, in the scriptures, the biggest problem with being wealthy is that it, I think this is it, that it, it obscures, wealth and riches can obscure one's sense of need, of being in need. The rich in this life have no real awareness of being dependent on anyone or anything. Whatever they need, they just get it. So I think we can say rare is the rich Christian who keeps this as straight in his mind as his poor Christian counterpart might. Of course, you can be a Christian and be rich. They are not mutually exclusive. And likewise, being poor doesn't automatically make you spiritual either, but it does create a deeper sense of the concept of need. So verse 19 is the rich man, and verse 20 
is Lazarus. Verse 20 implies Lazarus had become so bad off, he had to be carried to his begging station, his begging location, which was outside the gate of the rich man's mansion. So the rich man knew him, or should have, and it appears Lazarus lived off of what the rich man spilled or threw away. Many poor today are dependent upon the whims and fancies of the rich. If there was going to be a dinner party at the rich man's house, Lazarus's anticipation rose, and he hoped maybe there'll be some roast beef or shrimp in the trash that night. It also says he was covered with sores. Other translations um, to try to communicate being covered with sores says he had many sores. The poor have many kinds of problems which compound each other. I can't get a job that pays benefits, so I got sick, and I couldn't get to work, or my child got sick, and it got so bad, he ended up having to drop out of school that year, and now he or she is behind and can't ever catch up. I needed gas in the car, so I couldn't afford to get my tooth fixed, and now that's infected. My simple illness could have been cured if I'd had the money for the prescription I got at the clinic, but I had to buy food that day, and I postponed getting the medicine. The poor don't have just one sore. They have many compound interrelated sores. And then this pitiful image is added of common dogs coming to lick the sores. Well, the two ends of the spectrum are given regarding riches on this earth, the wealthy and the poor. And we all live somewhere on that spectrum. And the question to ask ourselves in light of this text today is how aware are you of your need today? I remember uh, in seminary, I thought I was poor. Well, we were. Um, we had an old Chevy Impala that was left over from my rich restaurant owner days. But that was long gone. But we still had the Impala called Amazing Grace. It had an eight-cylinder engine, but I owned nine spark plugs. And you see where that's going? As the engine aged, one of the cylinder's rings that seals the oil wore out, and it smoked a little as we went down the road. You've seen those cars. That was me. Uh, I knew I had about 300 miles each time before the spark plug and cylinder five fouled with oil, so I would swap it out with spark plug number nine and then clean the foul plug for next time in 300 more miles. Today, I never think about spark plugs. Have you, have I, lost that perspective? Have your possessions obscured your sense of need or lack of need? Maybe you're not worried about spark plugs, but just maybe you just have an ongoing, oppressive sense of thinking, I just want to get out of debt. Well, ending this first point of rich and poor in this life, a point of application would be, what should you do? And I can't answer that for you. I have to answer that for me. 
Uh, one thing would be, obviously, don't be like the rich man. He had resources and he didn't do anything. So what will you do? How will you get involved in this? If you ask the Lord, I think he will tell you in some way. One commentator said, maybe you can't lend a dollar, but you can lend a hand. And so how will you be involved? Well, that's, one, that's point one, rich and poor in this life. We move on now to the next section, which is 22 through 28, where the scene now shifts to the next life. Death intervenes in verse 22 for both men. We know, you heard this, this is no surprise, death is the great equalizer, everybody dies. Despite all the wealth of the rich man, death comes just as surely to him as it does to the poor. Humanly speaking, the wealthy might be able to afford the best health care and might seem to postpone death, but not really. The scriptures say the first time the earth was destroyed in Noah's day was by water, and Second Peter and Jude tell us that the next time, the final time, it's going to be by fire. Who's the richest man on earth today? I'm not... Is it Elon Musk um, or is it Jeff Bezos? Bezos? It used to be Bill Gates. Um, don't know. Let's go with Elon. Um, Elon Musk's house is a lot bigger and stronger than mine, and it will take a little longer, but his house will burn too, is the point. Our days are numbered. Verse 22 and other translations said the time for the death came. What time? God's precise moment of death for both of them. We struggle when someone leaves us too soon. This has happened here recently. But the time of everyone's death is fixed. And so in the text, both men experienced death. It says the angels carried Lazarus to heaven where he was comforted and rested on Abraham's bosom, but the rich man is described as simply dying and being buried. Now likely, the rich man had a very ostentatious funeral with lots of flowers and paid mourners. It was the custom if you could afford that. But for all that lavish show, his end was being in hell. As far as we know, it doesn't tell us. They probably dug a hole somewhere and threw Lazarus in it. We don't know. That seems to be the implication. So one man in torment and great need and the other one at full peace and rest with all his true needs cared for, all his many sores healed, joyous in the presence of God. The tables have been completely turned. Notice, too, that Lazarus doesn't seem surprised, but the rich man does. Lazarus has been hoping for this for a long time. It's been his great desire to go to heaven, and he has finally gotten the true desire of his heart. But the rich man, however, is completely befuddled and surprised by all this. He never saw it coming. He never thought this would be true for him. 
All the days he went outside his house and he saw Lazarus at the gate, he never in his wildest dreams imagined that Lazarus would in any sense be better off than he was. And verse 24 for the rich man is even more pitiful than verses 20 and 21 are for the poor man with his physical sores. In verse 24, he is still so self-absorbed. He wants Lazarus to serve him. That guy by the gate, um, have him go get me something. Have, make Lazarus leave his bliss and get me some water. And among other things, this shows us how the rich man got what he deserved and even what he wanted. I don't think he's connected those dots yet, but he is connecting them now. He lived a life of pride and self-centeredness, and it now continues in hell. Sort of a side comment, um, hell is described here as a place of torment and burning and fire. Now, this has caused much speculation about whether it's literal or not, and I've often wondered about those who hope it's figurative and not literal, thinking if it's only figurative they will somehow be better off than what is described here. But when the Bible uses imagery like this, it's always because there are no words to describe the true horror of it. They will wish it was only literal, literal fire, but it'll be even worse. That's because it's the just judgment of God himself. God isn't playing word games to scare us, He's actually being kind and gracious by warning us beforehand. What kindness, what blessing he would do. He would do such a thing by warning us. If you're outside of Christ this morning, I would plead with you to hear the rich man crying out, don't come here. Receive the gift of eternal life in Christ. Confess your sins and be reconciled to God, not judged in this way. Well, verse 25 talks about the great reversal both men are experiencing. The concepts of rich and poor are now put in their proper place and proper perspective. Um, a couple chapters ago in Luke 12, Luke said that a man's life does not consist of the abundance of his possessions. That is shown here in stark terms. Abraham says to the rich man, you were dead sure that riches made the man. You built your life on earthly wealth and you're now getting your wish for all eternity. By your earthly life, you said no thank you to God. I will provide for myself. You're getting your true heart's desire right now and it's permanent. He will not provide for you now, just as you said you didn't want him to provide for you all of your life on earth. Lazarus has asked God all his life to be his sustenance, and now he is. This is the great settling of accounts. And we see what the huge difference there is between heaven and hell, and Jesus calls it here a, a great chasm. Lazarus seems oblivious to hell, yet the rich man can see what he is missing in heaven. We do find verses like 
7 and 10 of the previous chapter, which says there will be rejoicing in heaven when a sinner repents, which implies people in heaven have some awareness of things on earth. But regarding ongoing involvement and moment-by-moment knowledge and watching everything that's happening here and in hell, Lazarus seems unaware, focusing instead on his joy and his comfort in God's presence. And the chasm is deep and vast, and it seems especially so for the rich man. In verses 27 and 28, he starts to plead and cry, which is, I think, both sad and chilling. It's sad in that the rich man is still trying to get Lazarus to serve him. Well, okay, if you won't send him to bring me some water, at least send him to go warn my five brothers who were just as rich and selfish as I am. So he's starting to connect. There's a glimmer of the rich man losing a bit of his self-absorption, but it's still narrowly focused on his own family. How sad. Well, it's also chilling in the reality and the finality of hell. It's a place of eternal torment. There is no second chance. There is no reincarnation. There is no video game reset button for more lives. Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. Apparently right away. There's no way out of this. It's a horrible place such that even the lost, you see that here, even the lost feel the need to warn other people lost people of the desperate condition of being there. Uh, other places in Scripture warn of this too. Um, 1 Thessalonians 4, 6 says this, The Lord will punish men for all their sins, as we have already told you and warned you. Key word being warned, that's the theme we're talking about now. In Acts 2:40, this is Peter's Pentecost sermon. He says, He warned them, and pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. It's Acts 2.40. So the rich man, lost in hell, says people who remain on this earth without Christ need warning. None of the life after death stories I've heard about mention this at all. And again, isn't it gracious and good of God to tell us this now, and then lastly, let's move to the third point, verses 29 through 31, where it speaks to, I think, one of the bigger themes in this whole section, these few chapters that I'm talking about. It speaks of the centrality, the value, and the function of the scriptures in God's plan for this world and the next. When the rich man says, please send Lazarus to warn my lost brothers, Abraham says, no, they have the scriptures. That's what they need to listen to. The rich man says, no, that's, that's not powerful enough. They need a power demonstration. They need signs and wonders. They need a dog and pony show. That'll, that'll wake them up. Probably speaking from experience here, when he says this, he thinks the thing to do would be to see the best, most expensive magic show ever. 
And he's being more prophetic than he realizes. He thinks it would be real magic to see a dead man alive again. He's saying, my brothers tripped over Lazarus every day and kicked the dogs out of the way too, just like I did. Maybe a magic show will help them connect the dots. Abraham says, no, the most powerful thing in the world in this regard is the scriptures. People today need the truth of the Bible. They don't need their best life now. They don't need to sow a seed of faith that will produce riches like they've never known. They need the word of God. And Jesus is speaking to us too. You and I have the Bible. And we may not yet fully realize what we have here. It's God's word. God has spoken. That God would in the first place stoop to deal with sinners is astounding enough, but that he would give them his very words in a written and understandable form is all the more incredible. Jesus is saying, pay attention to this. We have the word of God in our hands and we have our whole lives to read and study it. Yes, there are parts that are mysterious and puzzling, but what would you expect if God spoke? A first grade reading book? Well, the rich man said a dazzling sign is what they need. Jesus says, no, it isn't. It's the scriptures. And I wonder this morning, have you, have I lost this perspective? As close as we are to it, it's possible that that can happen. We should use this text this morning to examine ourselves. Yes, we are amazed at the rich man's selfishness and spiritual dullness, but is that all that King Jesus wants to walk away with from this text? Just how bad the Pharisees were? No, probably more. Let's think for a moment how we can grow in our love for and use of the scriptures. This man named Dawson Trotman, he was the founder of the Navigators, and he used an illustration about increasing your grip on the scriptures and you're thinking of using your hand <clears throat> to grab hold of a book. And he says the, the little finger is the barest beginning and he calls the little finger merely listening to the Bible. So you're, you're trying to get hold of the Bible and you just listen to it, <clears throat> it's going to be hard, better than nothing. But then if you add the ring finger, which is the level of not just listening but hearing what it's saying and starting to pay more attention, you, you can get a little grip. And then add the center finger, and he says that is studying. So listening, hearing, and now studying, you, you've got something or you're getting there. Look at how some of the themes are developed and how things fit together as you study, and your holding of the book increases. <clears throat> and then add your index finger, and that is memorizing it and making it part of you all the time, not just when it's open, but if you memorize it, it's going in more deeply. This is, my wife loved this, Eminem, memorize, that's that. And the fifth one is meditate. Now you've got something. You, it will, you will hold on to this no matter what happens in your life. 
And that was his idea of going, having the Bible go more deeply into you and your life. So verse 31 says, As amazing as it would be to see a dead man walking around, in God's mind, having the scriptures is more powerful and more effective. A revived dead man would be an amazing sign, but that raises the question, a sign of what? Yes, it, it would certainly get their attention. The rich man was right about that part. But the point of it all would be so that they came to know what Lazarus knew. And for that, you need Moses and the prophets, the scriptures. The scriptures explain the significance of the dead man walking around. This is, of course, <clears throat> as we're closing, this is, of course, now pointing to Jesus as the all-important someone, capital S, who rose from the dead. But if you don't know why, that he died for our sins and rose for our righteousness, if you don't know that, then you've missed the point of the dead man walking around. It might make you think already of the Emmaus Road where Jesus explained to the two men the difference between what the rich man didn't know and what Lazarus did know. Luke 24, 27 says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. He is the one great someone who rose from the dead, and the scriptures tell us why. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Let's be encouraged again this morning of the riches that we have in Christ in the scriptures, and may God give us, his children, an ever-increasing love for his written word, because it all points to the living word, Christ himself. Let's pray. Father, we confess to you this morning, if we're honest, that many of us may have lost this sense of warning others about the real meaning of life, and we've looked more like the world, gathering riches, building bigger and better houses and barns to hold our wealth. We might try to explain it away and rationalize it and say, no, that's not what we're doing. Well, Father, you alone, by your indwelling spirit, can sort that out for us, and we ask that you would. And we admit we're afraid of what it might mean. But your word has spoken clearly about that today, and so help us see it, help us to believe, give us wisdom to see the difference and the courage to act on it. And how we thank you for the word of God, our time together today and every Sunday would not be possible without it. And so we also admit our need to strengthen our, our grip on it, but we realize too that as we do, you will be strengthening your grip on us. And so we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.